Welcome to What the 50 podcast with Hazel Englander. I'm a classic Vogue model based in London, and each week I interview women in their 50s from all walks of life about the positive, fun, and upbeat side of being 50. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Rundle. Lucy has worked in the wine industry for a couple of decades, bringing wines into people's homes, doing private tastings, as well as working in PR and events for companies such as Raymond Blanc of Le Manoir Quatre Saisons. I have to say that correctly because Lucy's also fluent in French and I think possibly Italian, we'll find out in a second. Lucy went to wine school, the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust, no less, where she acquired a diploma in wines and spirits. Lucy also blogs about various wines and spirits and advises on wine lists, weddings, events, and more. Lucy, welcome. Thank you, Hazel. Nice to be here. Lucy, it seems appropriate to be interviewing you today on the day of the Big English Wine Good Friday. Can you tell me about that, please? Of course. That is something where everybody who's part of the English wine industry is getting together, obviously mostly by social media, because we are coming to you in the days of coronavirus, Yes. to really celebrate the English winemaking sector. There are some really delicious ones coming out of England, and I've got one here, which I'm loving, and I can tell you some more about that if you like, and Thank about you. some sparkling wine in general. I think we all need a bit of a fizzy little lift on a day to, like today and I've been out in the sun I've been enjoying my glass of cremel. Cremel. The thing is we are this is what the fizz the episode this week is what the fizz and we definitely need some fizz on this Friday don't we as you say we've been in lockdown now they're calling it the booze bickering and binge baby. Um, <laughs> and baby baby boom binge bickering uh, and booze uh, period with this yeah, lockdown. Yeah, you get booze up, binned, and then you either have babies or... <laughs> <laughs> the more booze you have, the more likely you are to have a baby, probably. Um, so talk to me about, obviously, um, the sparkly ones, because we're having a fizzy Friday. We're trying to lift spirits yeah. today, literally. Yeah. Um, physically and metaphorically lift spirits, actually. I can see we've both got a nice glass of something here. Tell me about Raymond, I hope I'm saying that right, Champagne, Prosecco, Carver, all, all the main fizzers that the, the Brits and internationally people will have heard of. Yeah, well, they are all the main ones. So the ones from France are the Champagne that we all know and love. And that's the only one that's allowed to be called Champagne. It has to be grown in the Champagne region of France. Um, the French do some other sparkling wines too, which are lovely. The one I'm drinking now is a Cremant, uh, it's a Cremant de... Loire. It's from the Loire. The Loire. And they, um, they use the grapes from whichever region. So a Cremant de Limoux will be using whichever grape varieties uh, are native to that area and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. In Champagne, they use Chardonnay that we all know and some darker grapes too, but not the skins, which is why you don't get the colour. And in, they don't do that in Rosé either, but we'll come to Rosé in a minute. And then we're going to look at the sparkling wine from Spain, which is Carver, Prosecco from Italy, and another one is called Franciacorta. And then of course today being the big um, English wine tasting Good Friday, I've got a couple of English ones to recommend with me too. Perfect. I'm very interested in the English ones, especially because of today celebrating them. Can we really compete with, with the French and the Italians on this? 
Yeah, I would say we definitely can, um, especially with all this global warming, because actually the temperatures here are raising. Uh, they're rising a little bit. And along with the fact that the soil is quite similar to actually that of Champagne, which is quite a chalky soil, we're able to grow similar grapes. So we're able to grow Chardonnay here, Pinot Noir here, and other grapes that are suitable for sparkling wine production. You have to adjust them a bit to make sure you get exactly the right one. They're all, they can be quite complicated because you can change grapes a little bit. Uh, you can change their rootstocks. Um, or rather the way they're grafted to, to avoid various things. That's really something I don't know very much about, so I'm not going to talk about that. But, but you, you can, can uh, different soils, yeah. yeah. So, so it's not just the grape, it's the whole method. It's the whole kind of process that they go through that you can tinker about with things. Yeah, to make it taste good, it's the, it does start off with obviously the grapes and how they're grown. There's a lot of a lot of what makes wine nice is done by the winemaker, you know, from start to finish. Uh, all of it, really. <laughs> and you have to have nice grapes, of course. They have to be good fruit. But yeah, so all these countries use different grapes to make a sparkling wine. And you can tell the differences when you drink them. I always think Prosecco tastes a little bit of apples. Uh, Carver smells, sometimes has a bit of a whiff of rubber. <laughs> it's not horrible, that sounds horrid, but I promise you. Like a bit of rubber with your Carver? A little bit of rubber. Yeah. Um, champagne often has that yeasty note about it, which I really like. It's quite a strong, yeasty, lazy flavour. Um, and that's due to how it's made. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and then lots of others. And I think you just have to dip into them and find out the ones that you like the best. It's, it's interesting, actually, the, the snobbery element of fizz, because... I got married in Italy um, and they were really quite, I was at a beautiful hotel in Capri, uh, the Quisisana, fantastic five-star place. Everybody had flown out from England. It was very lovely. Um, but the hotel that was hosting the event would not allow me to serve anything other than Prosecco. And the pride they had in their national fizz was, was, overwhelming really it wasn't that they were bullying me they were just right so we celebrated with the most fantastic proseccos proseccos i've never seen in the uk and i have to say we're just as good as the champagne what would you yeah, think yeah i think that's often the case that people can definitely like and appreciate another sparkling wine other than champagne just as much and at a lower price point um i think italy is very much fiat's and ferraris their, their wines can be amazing and they keep a lot of it there. So when you go, you have amazing wines. The sparkling wine I really love from Italy is called Franciacorta. And I'm not quite sure where you can get it here. You will be able to get it somewhere. I'll look it up afterwards so you can put it in your notes if you ever put them. Yes. And um, that's really lovely and is a bit less apple than Prosecco. So keep an eye out for Franciacorta. But Prosecco is a great, I call it sort of Friday evening, quick drink after work wine. You know, you can mix it with things. You can make it a bit more interesting. And like I say, the price point is generally really good on Prosecco. And do you get what you pay for even with Prosecco? Because some of them are quite cheap, aren't they? Some of them are upwards of, you know, verging on the champagne prices or, well, cheap champagne do you get what you pay for? I mean, some people say a, a good Prosecco is better than a cheap champagne, for example. 
Yeah, mm, I think you do get what you pay for by and large um, in wines. That if you do buy a little, uh, you spend a little bit more, I think you normally get something a bit nicer. If, if I was, I wouldn't buy a really expensive Prosecco personally, because I don't really think of Prosecco like that. If I wanted to splash out on an expensive wine, I would probably find something a bit more hidden and I'd look for something that was going to be good value, perhaps not completely known about, you know, not going in at the top price. So I wouldn't spend my 50 quid on a Prosecco because I reckon, I don't think I've had a Prosecco that I felt sort of merits that. I've, I don't think I can distinguish between Prosecco so much, although I have had some <laughs> slightly grim ones at the very low price point. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is this snobbery, isn't there, with with different wines sure. and champagnes. If you were throwing a, a wedding in the UK or a party of a certain sort of calibre of people, what would you serve? If first of all, what would you serve if money was no object, and what would you serve if you're on a budget and somewhere in between, perhaps? Do you know one of my little fantasies is that someone comes and says, "Right, you can have as much wine as you want, and I'll pay for all of it, but it has to be from one country in the world." And I've always thought that my country would be France because of the expensive champagnes and so on and so forth. But then I thought, if I had the same thing, but I had to pay, I might choose Italy, or possibly. Australia because the price points are a little bit lower and perhaps they're not so great you don't get the extremes of greatness <laughs> that you get in France that's possible um, but yeah that is that is snobbery I suppose um, I think it's more a kind of a sort of it's all a bit um, of a mystery I think people like to make it look mis mysterious this wine and all about it and as if you need to know more than what you can taste. And I don't think you have to need to know more. I think your taste can dictate what you like. So it's worth trying a lot of different wines or a few different wines to see what you, what you really like and, and what your taste is suited to, because we all have different tastes. And some of the wines I love is fairly inexpensive, like the one I'm drinking now. And some of the wines I love are very expensive and I don't really get to drink them. And do you think an awful lot of it is in the presentation? For example, what glasses we serve it in, whether you have waiters pouring it for you, perhaps wrapping a, 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 a napkin around the label. People might not know what they're drinking, but like it more. I'm not saying yeah. stop them off with rubbish, but to a point, how much of it is down to how it's presented, the glasses, the food that goes with it, that complements it. Is, that, is there a whole package that goes with it? There certainly can be. Yeah, I would say so. Let's start with the glasses, because I always find this one quite funny. Um, it was said that, uh, you know, you can drink champagne in flutes, which, which is what I have here, and I think something like what you have there. And also, you can drink it from a cup. And those were supposed to be little glasses modelled initially on the shape of um, Marie Antoinette's breast. Oh. So you probably know those little, quite flat yes. glasses. That was, um, it was a, it's a kind of a shallow, broad-rimmed type of goblet. And they used wax moulds, apparently. So, I mean, a nice question, if you feel like asking your friends, is if they had a, 
if they had a champagne glass designed after them, would it be a formidable? Would it be a shot glass? Well, if, if you were going to a party, you'd hope they at least got a double D, really, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's the formidable, the great big pint glass. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what yeah. how well and down Marie Antoinette was, but Well exactly, you know, if she'd had a great big boob job, we'd all be a lot drunker. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, especially on Fizz Friday. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even know if that's completely completely true. But it's not the best way of drinking your champagne because the surface area, the flat bit, is a lot more. So you're losing a lot of the bubbles in sure. a cook. So I would stay, I would stick with a flute. Now, when we come to food and champagne and sparkling wine, um, traditionally, they do say that fish and chips goes really well with champagne. Champagne is made with initially quite um, an acidic wine, a wine, a base wine with quite high acidity in it because it has to undergo quite a lot to get to the champagne stage to when we, where we drink it. And just like, I suppose, vinegar on your chips, that does go with, with fish and chips. You've got that slight acidity there too. But don't put lots of other things on your fish and chips if you're going to enjoy it with champagne. You should probably just have the fish and chips and champagne. But I am not a snob about what goes with what. I think just have, you know, what you like to go with things. It can make a real difference, actually, um, to how things taste for you. But if you like the flavours that you have when you have a particular red wine and fish, I think that's, that's fine. You might have a nice light red wine and a meaty fish and it goes very well. So I'm not one of these people who say, oh gosh, you, you can't possibly drink that with that and, and eat that. I, I don't think, well, we can't fix the The red wine with fish thing, because it's, it, in all the, the restaurants, you don't, I, would, I would shy away from ordering a red with a fish or a white with a, a steak when I used to eat that. And you, you almost feel like it's a huge faux pas if you're sitting in gauchos and you order, you know, a glass of champagne with your fillet. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... I think you probably get away with a glass of champagne and gauchos, but I know what you mean. Yeah, and I wouldn't order a glass of white wine with my steak either. I like that flavour of a nice big, maybe something like an Argentinian Malbec to yeah. have with my steak. You know, a really big meaty wine to go with meat it does there is a i mean it does taste better that's my thought my point is more just not to be snobby about it because if somebody loves a glass of chardonnay with their steak who am i to say i don't think that's a very good idea you know it's i think it's fine one of the things i love with um my sparkling wine which i tried a little bit earlier i had some um over the hill clementines and I made Nigella Lawson's clementine cake, and that goes amazingly with an English sparkling wine. I have to say, oh, I was in everything you'd expect from Nigella, the sort of English goddess of of cookery. Um, so um, you started out at you did WSET. I'm not quite sure what that that is, that but you said you went noble wines. Yeah, I'd done lots of wines, lots of private tastings where you go along to people's houses where they're celebrating something. I, I was the entertainment at a Botox party. So oh. they all had their little Botox injections. And I told them, I think we mostly concentrated on rosé for, for that one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, they yeah. say that um, vodka freezes more muscles than Botox and half the price or something. <laughs> <laughs> you have to inject it though. <laughs> yeah, what a waste. 
So, so you went to a Botox party, you, ho you hosted the, the wines. Gosh, I'm, I hope the, um, the guy administering it wasn't drinking. Girls, they were all girls. They were all outside in their bikinis. Um, no, they weren't drinking, no. And they'd done most of the Botox by the time I got there. Everyone was looking a little bit, you know, post-needly. <laughs> and then I did another one where there were 22 girls who got back together for their reunion of celebrating having their boobs enlarged. So wow. there's clearly a bit of a, a, bit of a plastic surgery and, and champagne pairing here. Gosh, you've got you've had some uh, interesting events, Lucy. It's well, sort of, uh, it sounds well, like they're, really the they're the funniest ones that I found sort of really entertaining to do. Along with stag parties, can be really fun to do as well. And how do you make different the stag parties to the girls? Um, I try and choose what I perceive to be more masculine wines and fewer sweet things and maybe a whiskey at the end or something like that or an Armagnac, something a bit different. It's very um, sort of stereotypical, just what you would assume. But I've done, I did a really fun gay stag party and he did want, um, he wanted it to be all pink and blush and stuff like that. So it was, it was all very rosé and I put in all my doublon tendres and everything else that I've got up my sleeve. And we did have a really good time here. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So um, is Moe Hennessy French? If so, did you conduct your entire time there? Is that how you how you consolidated your French? Because I know you did French at uni, didn't you? Mm, no, I didn't really <clears throat> use much French when I was at Matt Hennessy because I was based here in London, and uh, no, we didn't we didn't have to speak French. I mean, it's helpful when you're visiting um, wineries in France if you can speak a bit of French because they love to talk about how they make their wine and all the ins and outs of it. So you can have some great chats or great listens if you can speak French. I mean, my understanding is better than my spoken French, so at least I can understand even if I can't always say what I want back. Sure you can. So I just, I was interested in how you pronounce that. I always say Moe, Moe Hennessy. You, did you say Moet? Yeah. It's, so, it's a, so we're all saying it wrong. It's a bit like um, turbot, the fish. People say turbo, but it's got yeah. a on the end. So it's, it's Moet, is that how you, so I, I so. Moet and Chandon and, and a Chandon in a restaurant, they wouldn't sort of, Throw me out. Pretty sure it's Moet. Moet. Yeah, I think it is Chandon. Yeah, that's what I would say. I haven't thought about it much. But I tell you what, I did used to think about a lot in the pronunciation stakes, and that was Glenmorangie. Everyone says Glenmorangie, but it's Glenmorangie, the whiskey. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> Interesting. That's very good. I mean, there's so many things, isn't there? Like um, bruschetta and bruschetta. Yeah. All things that the Brits say wrong. I mean, I, yeah. I, I've heard it's bruschetta or bruschetta, sorry, bruschetta. bruschetta yeah. So yeah, but people say bruschetta, don't they? Yeah. And it's, to me, that sounds wrong. But when I say bruschetta, people look at me like as if I'm wrong, because the majority of people will say things like moe or um, bruschetta. I would say moe as well. I think it is moe chandon. I'm pretty sure. Did I just say moe? I see, I don't even know what I'm Maybe saying, but I, I would it is because you drop the H perhaps I don't know maybe it's just different when you're saying it as a as an entirety mm. um, so a big part of your career has been in marketing these PR and events is that where you're at now uh, where I'm at now um, is sort of a bit in limbo because I have recently well I had a baby when I was 44 <laughs> uh, which is a big surprise for me I was not 
thinking that that was going to happen or planning on that. But enough wine in the heart of California, Napa Valley, anything is possible. So uh, because a lot of PR and events is weekends and evenings, I have retrained and I'm doing more social media and things like that now. So that's where I'm going. Although I don't really have too many alcohol people and actually it's, everything's really quiet because I just did that. And then um, have, I've, I've done a few projects for people and now it's all lockdown and very quiet. So I'm just enjoying the fruits of, of all this labor. Well, we definitely need some fun and some fizz during this time. This yeah. podcast isn't about politics. It's not about, there's a million, if people want to hear about coronavirus, there's podcasts for that. There's the BBC, there's news every five minutes. I really like to escape on my podcast away from the serious things and have some fun, have some Friday fizz. Um, I, I don't know whether you can see my glass here. I got it out especially for you because I'm quite proud of it. Um, I bought this in Mujan, just above Cannes. You know the little village above Cannes called Mujan? Um, I was there on a driving holiday. Um, yeah, no, I bought this glass in Mujan and it's tilted in. I know no one can, can see. It's tilted in at the top. And I was told that this is a specialist, that it points to your nose or, or something when you're drinking wine, you're meant to have it. It goes out like a sort of bottom and then goes slimmer at the top. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I and that with them and drove them all home to the UK, feeling very proud of myself. And I thought one day I'll get these out and show off to a wine connoisseur on my, on my laptop. How lovely! Yeah, those are very. That looks like a very posh glass to me. For anyone listening, if they're wondering about the shape of this glass, <laughs> if you imagine more the Madonna going through her Versace look, that's what your glass would be modelled on there, but with yeah. a bit of an in at the top. Yes. Oh, I see. Um, and that will help that will help converge the smells back up to your nose and the all the aromas and bubbles so they're not going to be quite like on in the coop that we were talking about with the really big surface area where the bubbles can just escape so that's keeping them in a little bit more and what about air, aerating red the bigger wider goblets for red and letting them breathe can you tell oh, yeah, me I definitely that? do that that makes a big difference that makes a big difference. Yeah, you definitely need to pour your red from a height to get some air into it. Um, or for you, Hazel, get your butler to do it. <laughs> this, is, this is day off, unfortunately. This is day off. <laughs> but decanters yeah. as well. I know that decanters do make quite a, a big difference, don't they? They do, because you're just getting more air in the wine. It's pretty much as simple as that. So just have a glass while you're drinking, while you're cooking, a glass of wine while you're drinking, have a glass of wine while you're cooking and the, the rest of the wine in the bottle will be getting a bit of air in. Don't just take a tiny bit, you know, take a proper glass. That's one way. What I normally do is I pour a glass while I'm cooking and then have the rest with dinner. Super. Um, again, back in uh, south of France, like there was a, I think it might have been, I think it was in um, Ez, the little medieval town up in the hills above Nice. They have a beautiful uh, cookery school. It was for, for wine and, and cookery. It was for people training for, for all the, the best of everything. I suppose a bit like Raymond Blanc, which we must come on to in a minute. And again, people could go there and pay a, a fraction of the price because they were all learning. So they were training the waiters, they were training everybody. 
And I went with some friends. It's all five-star, lovely tablecloths, but you get this waiter sort of dropping things and trying, pouring very nervously. But the food is lovely. And someone came along and, and put our opened bottle of red wine in the middle of the table and didn't pour it. And I was much younger then, didn't really know what was going on. Apart from the fact I was like Pavlov's dogs after 15 minutes waiting for someone to give me a glass of wine. And I, my friend reached for the bottle and this French guy flew out and goes, no, you must wait. And made us feel an inch high. He said, no, you must wait. And we had to wait, I think, 20 minutes at least for this bottle to, to sort of and It was just opened and plonked on the table. Yes, and it was, a, it was a real test. Nothing had been taken out of it? No. Well, that's so, silly. <laughs> I thought it was silly. But of course, you made you feel an inch high and very, oh, the Brits, you know, trying to grab, grab the bottle before we've even poured it. But you you to pour it, you'd air it much quicker if you poured it, a bit like that, yeah. and then into the glasses. So then you've got the air reaching that surface area. Exactly. Well, maybe so it's going to air quicker. No, I don't get that. Maybe they were... Maybe they were trying to make you wait for another reason. Yeah, maybe it's just because they thought, well, they're English, we'll make them wait. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually love the French. I mean, I'm always over there. It's my favourite country. And the fact, you can get there so quickly. But getting back to you, Lucy, um, actually, on that theme, who's the more informal, fun, because you can speak the language, working with them, going around the vineyards, going to Loire Valley, Champagne, whatever, chatting to them, who is the more fun and informal out of us Brits and the French? Oh my goodness. I don't think I'm qualified to answer that. But what I could tell you is um, the French tend to, they sort of dress really well and they, they come up, you know, you go and visit their winery, their cove, and they give you a wine tasting and it's all very polite. And they tell you that they've, you know, they've fermented this in the stainless steel tank at 13 degrees C or whatever. And it's very, factual and polite and the the better dressed they are the nicer the wines can be a guide you know just a bit of my experience there on the other hand when you go to australia the scruffier they are the better the wines and there's, there's none of this formality you know they give you a glass and they go all right get your laughing gear around that mate and that you know that's the difference that's like fun so, <laughs> and yeah. there's some quite good Romanian and Eastern European wines coming through, aren't there? Or have been for a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't say, uh, I haven't done extensive research at all, but I happen to know that Waitrose does a wonderful Romanian Pinot Noir at a very good price, about six or seven pounds. It's really good. And yeah. you used to be the buyer for Waitrose, didn't you? No, I wasn't a buyer. I used to do the wine club. The wine so club. People, yeah, people would... Um, would would send off for various wines, but I did I did do lots of tastings. So I'm used to drinking wine at eight in the morning and so on and so forth. <laughs> we spit it out. Yeah. So um, what would you say is the what is the most sort of popular quaffable wines, and have we got it right? Because the popular ones that the Brits like not always based on price. I mean, ha has our palate improved or, or could we improve on what we consider quaffable, affordable, everyday, popular wines? You know, it's interesting because before I did this, I was talking to some friends and I asked them, what would they want to know about sparkling wine? And that was kind of one of the biggest questions that came up a, a long time was, you know, who dictates what we drink? What are these fashions? Have we got it right? And there's obviously no right and wrong, like any fashion, 
you know, we were all wearing flares in the 70s and then they came back again. I can't remember when it was, but I know it was in my lifetime. <laughs> Five years ago? <laughs> yeah, flares make a bit of a reappearance. I mean, and it's the same for, um, oh, it's the same in wines. You know, things have a phase of popularity and then they disappear for a while and then perhaps come back again with a new slant, just like in fashion. They're not the exact same flares that you would have worn in the 70s. They've got something different about them, I hope. <laughs> and if um, you think there's anything that you could get one over somebody with like an oldie or something or you know yeah yeah i've got a brilliant one for getting one over if you want to know what that is it's a sparkling japanese wine and it's made from a grape called koshu again i will give you all these details and it's called something petillant i'll find out in two minutes my brain will start working again and um, it's really lovely, and you can buy it in a shop called Amethyst. There's one on Wardour Street. But if you ever meet anyone who says they know all about wine and they're a bit of a snob, you can say, oh, that's fantastic. Come and do a wine tasting with me. And then just say you'll give them five grand if they can just tell you which country it comes from. Because they won't. <laughs> they won't be able to. They won't guess Japan unless they've heard this. <laughs> and they know all about it. But that's one of my favorites for doing it, a wine tasting, because it really catches people. Um, you know, off guard. And I'm going to go and have a look at the bottle and, and show you it in, in a second. And what, what was I going to say? Something about fashions. I was going to just go on a bit more about yeah, that. I was asking you earlier about the fashions that come and go. I mean, everybody was drinking yeah. Chardonnay, weren't they? Then it's Pinot Grigio and recently, yeah. you know, then it went to sort of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And, and now I think it's yeah. gone back a little bit to Chardonnays, but the lighter unoaked ones. But how can our palate just vary that much that we'll just jump ship like that? Surely if you like Pinot Grigio, you like it whenever, whatever. You're not going to suddenly start drinking something else because a wave of fashion comes in. No, um, no. And I certainly would keep drinking what I liked. It's more that you would have the opportunity to try something new. Um, I like showing people, for example, a nice Picpoul de Pinot. It's a lovely white wine, I think. It's quite crowd-pleasing goes really well with fish and all that kind of thing that you would expect a white wine to and it's a bit of a change from chardonnay or pinot grigio pinot grigio more of a change from that part it depends um but it's quite light and easy drinking and so it gives people an opportunity to try something new and then if they like it they can add that to the list and i think as we get older you hopefully drink a little bit less but nicer that's my plan that's true absolutely um so talk me through an elegant dinner party. Say there were six to 10 couples arriving, arriving in the door right through to pudding and beyond. What, if you had, could talk me through the sort of stages that you would do so that you open the front door, you give them a glass of. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, well, it would depend, <laughs> depend on them and what kind of evening I wanted. Um, what I do here, if I don't have, so much booze or money and I want people to loosen up quite quick is I would serve and I would also do this if I had lots of Prosecco that perhaps wasn't particularly flavorful and I wanted to brighten it up a bit and I would make little champagne cocktails and that you just take a, a glass either your slightly differently shaped glass or mine would do and you pop one of those rough cut sugar cubes in the bottom and then some Angostura bitters. You can get them in Sainsbury's too. Just a couple of drops of that. 
and then a little tiny bit of brandy and then you fill it up with um prosecco or whatever you're drinking and that's a traditional known as a champagne cocktail obviously if you make it with champagne but that gets people quite drunk quite quick to be honest with you because it's got the brandy in it too it's really drinkable it's quite sweet full of bubbles knock a couple of them back you're on your way and then through the dinner party obviously you'd have your selection of red white depending on, on the yeah I would serve probably a white, I mean, that cocktail was quite strong, so it's going to blast your taste buds a bit. So I probably wouldn't serve that if I was serving something really nice after. But a rule is to serve your nice stuff earlier on in the evening when people's taste buds are all fresher as well. So if you've got a lovely champagne, it's nice to have a toast or something, you know, an initial thing with that. And then you can serve something else. People won't notice so much. Um, after but I would say one glass of something lovely is always nice at a party and then afterwards do you believe in pudding wines I do believe in pudding wines some people I know live for pudding wines my goodness me yeah we all love a pudding wine a nice um um chateau de can would be nice they're quite sweet aren't they I mean if you had to define a pudding wine for people who aren't familiar with them because they're not that common are they? when I say common people don't often bring out a pudding wine so if you had to describe its purpose, taste. I often think they smell quite sort of marmalade and raisiny, like really dried fruits, um, candied fruits, and they can be quite luscious. Some of them smell a bit, um, they have a kind of savoury note, a kind of almost musty, strawy note, but it's nice. They are super sweet. They're often described as luscious. And they go, I find they go very well with things like Christmas pudding. That's the time I always have one is Christmas day with my Christmas pudding. I try not to drink too much sweet wine. And that's just because um, I don't want to get even fatter. <laughs> oh, you hardly are. And then afterwards, when everybody is still standing and they re retire for cheese and biscuits or this is a very old fashioned traditional dinner party, but. I presume you'd bring the port out. I mean, the, the pudding wines are always white, are they? Um, well, they're quite dark white sometimes, like really orangey ones you can get. There's um, a nice one, an Australian one that's very orangey. Again, I'll think of, should, uh, not very armed with my words today. I'll think of the name of that in a minute and I'll let you know. Um, uh, and they've, they've gone through something called botrytis, all these sweet wines, not all of them, but the nicer ones, which is when the grapes themselves rot, and it's called noble rot, the noble grapes that rot. And that rotting means that the water is taken from the grapes, it dries them out, and that leaves them a lot sweeter. So that's one of the things that makes them sweet. You, you lead me to a question, actually, about organic wines, because you're talking about rotting fruit that's there and then I presume we lead on to preservatives. Organic wines take out all the preservatives. How does that work in the great scheme of things? I'm not sure they take preservatives out. I think it's more that they don't put them in. Okay. I mean there's no, I don't think you can actually talk about organic wine. I think you can talk about wine that's made from organically grown grapes and then do you know this is another area that um, it's 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 quite difficult um yes you can make wine from organically grown grapes and i don't know what what changes in the process after to 
than, than regular winemaking. I don't really know. Um, and there's also, there's the addition of sulfites that people often ask me about and say, is it true that sulfites cause really bad hangovers? And again, I, I don't really know. It gets quite complicated. I think there are a lot of sul sulfites in something like orange juice, um, but it may be that um, the less love a wine has had in its manufacturing process, the more sulfites it needs, which, which could contribute to that. And the other thing people always ask is about vegan wine and why isn't wine vegan? And that's another really tricky one um, because I, I would imagine that most wine is vegan these days. I don't think they would use those um, animal proteins to clean it, which was one of the things they used to use. Um, but that's, those are questions that I'm always a bit mystified myself about and can never find a clear answer. But I do know, yes, organic wine, give it a go. There's all this raw wine, natural wine, things that have been a lot less treated, as it were. You know, they've been, they're a lot more just, just fermented in their barrels and, and no, nothing added. So it's going to be harder to make. And I'm sure some are absolutely lovely. I haven't tried that many recently I have to say and I have to say but one of the wines that I've got with me today that I am really enjoying I think it is yes it is vegan and vegetarian but that this and this is my Roebuck Estates wine I'm just trying this I've got two wines with me today I've got the Roebuck Estates wine and I have the 2014 I am just looking at the label now, um, yes, it's just called the Roebuck Estates Classic Cuvée 2014. So that was quite a good year for them. And this is a delicious wine. I'm really, really enjoying it. Roebuck, it got, is that, which country is that? It's UK wine. Oh, brilliant. Because that brings yeah. me on, on. I mean, we, we must today of all days, it's such an important day for British wine, celebrate yeah. it. So tell me more about these two British wines you have in front of you. I got one British and one French. Okay. Um, the, the British one, the Roebuck Estates wine, it's from Sussex and it has won some awards, I think, as well, this particular one. Um, and it's very, it's got a tiny bit of oak on it. Um, it's made mostly of Chardonnay and it's almost, it's quite yeasty. It's got that kind of baked bread, sort of a tiny bit of baked bread. I can't say that, baked bread. bread. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Baked bread. <laughs> so I'll get that. And, um, but it's quite a creamy palette too. I'm really enjoying it. And it's a bit, and it's a bit lemony. I think a lot of English wines are quite lemony. Um, so I'm really enjoying this Roebuck Estates uh, um, 2014 Classic Cuvée. And then the other wine I've got is just a very, it's a Cremant de Loire um, from shot around the corner that I particularly love it again it's fun. very easy yeah. and it's got a good price point it's 12.99 and you wouldn't really know that it it wasn't a champagne I don't think because it is very yeasty so that's like a lot fizz of for 12.99 it's a fizz then I thought it was a one oh, yeah. oh gosh I was gonna say so that's pretty good price 12.99 is that what you're drinking it does look a fabulous color I have to say mm -hmm. um it's funny, actually, because I, I was lucky enough to be invited to a wine tasting event at Lord's Cricket Ground, and um, I hadn't been to one before, and everybody from all over the world had their tables, and we were meant to go round them, and I, I found it heartbreaking to have to spit everything out, actually, and I thought I, I was beautifully dressed, and with these people from the Middle East, funnily enough, um, 
Basil, some, a friend of mine, and he, he was, he's very into collecting wines. He never used to drink, but he does a little bit. And he was, he was just looking at it from a business point of view and from collections. And of course, everybody was super well behaved. But have you ever had, because these events can be quite market, snobbish, or it's not a bar at the end of the day. Have you had anyone misbehave at one of your events or get really drunk? What's the worst thing that's ever happened? Fill the beans, Lucy. It's Friday. Really? Yeah, come on. We want to hear the, we want to hear the gossip now. Um, <laughs> no names. <laughs> no, well, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't know their names. But actually, the worst thing that happened to me in a tasting, um, it was nothing to do with the alcohol, but it was about the first one that I did. And I went to this gorgeous mansion in the Cotswolds. And I opened my first wine, which is a, another lovely English sparkling wine from Chapel Down. I remember it well. And as I launched the cork, I didn't catch it. You know, often I try and catch it. I put a tea towel over so it does, makes just a little sound. You know, it doesn't go everywhere. But the cork shot off and it hit this massive vase. It was really big. And you know when things wobble and you just stand there just just paralyzed because you're waiting for the crash well it didn't it just it stood back in its place but I don't know I felt absolutely traumatized for about a week after imagining that I'd somehow broken some sort of you were sort of in the equivalent of Downton Abbey firing corks at vintage ornaments and <laughs> did anyone else hear it or was it just one of those slow motion moments for you no, everyone just looked absolutely horrified, actually, and stared at me as if I tried to do that. <laughs> um, but it was all right after that. Unfortunately, we were distracted by um, a wonderful team of people. If you ever get the chance to use them, do. Uh, they're called Butlers in the Buff. And they're oh, native. wow. We, I think we all need a few Butlers in the Buff at lockdown. <laughs> I know. And do they do what they say on the tin? Oh, yeah. Butlers in the Buff. Yeah, they wear a little like a pinny thing around the front but it's very little and uh they're great fun they've got great bodies and they're they're, they're often sort of antipodeans um and they're very easy going they're really helpful <laughs> poor girls doing their wine tastings and a lot of junk people sometimes and it gave me the opportunity to use the line when i saw one of the guys in the sainsbury's local at the end of my road about six weeks after the event to say I didn't recognise you with your clothes on. I've never been able to say that. Now I can. <laughs> so they're literally so, wearing an apron and, and not much else. Yeah. Yeah, they're great fun. They're really good. Um, and, and good for tastings, that kind of thing. I mean, it's a lovely thing to do for hen parties and that kind of thing. You know, you do a wine tasting and you can choose some of your your wedding wines. Or you can you can do something a bit more creative and think of other ideas. I did... Um, one girl had a wedding, I think it was down in the New Forest, in a, in a sort of a clearing. It was all very romantic anyway, and not much of a budget. So we got really cheap wine from France, um, cheap sparkling wine. We served it really cold and mixed it. People could, guests could choose between, you know how you make a kia, a kia royale yeah. is, wow. is uh -huh. cassis and sparkling yeah. wine. So we had cassis, strawberry, apricot, all different liqueurs, all decorated beautifully with the appropriate fruits. And then people could actually just help themselves, you know, have this wine with a little something. And that was a really good way of doing it. It didn't cost very much um, because the wine, the main wine was pretty inexpensive. 
So um, going back to 18s, 21sts, when you don't want all the kids getting legless and being irresponsible and all the rest of it, but you still want to, to throw a good bash for them. How you've mentioned a few tips like the um, the Angostura bitter and the brandy and this other one now. Yeah, don't do that to them. The <laughs> kids now. <laughs> yes, yes. Come on, you poor deprived children. We're just going to ply you with brandy Angostura, <laughs> bitter and champagne. You poor sods. You're having the, the cheap version. <laughs> okay, so you know what I'm trying to get at. What would you? What would you? I would, they feel they're getting the, the buzz, but they're not really. I would, I would mix it with a juice and I wouldn't do orange juice. I'd do something a little bit more dramatic. So um, a really good thing to do is raspberries. Just get punnets of raspberries and shove them in the blender. You can even put a tiny bit of apple juice or something in it or something a bit sugary. So you can make a sugar syrup mm -hmm. and just sugar and water. And then you put that in with the raspberries, blend them all up and then put a little bit, say an inch and a half at the bottle of glass, and then you can fill it up with your eco carver, or as in economical, or uh, Prosecco or whatever. And I think that will help, as long as there's no liqueur in that mixer that you're giving it, you're giving them to. If you have a sort of half wine and half, a good one to do actually is tinned peaches. Oh, Get yeah. the, the ones that are tinned in the sugar solution, you know, and tinned in syrup is the worst, isn't it? Yeah. We'll have plenty. There's probably a shortage of them during lockdown. The whole of, <laughs> you know, tinned peaches have suddenly become, you know, the food of, of World War Three, as we're calling it. Desired thing. Yeah. Judging by the Sainsbury's near me, there's no tonic. There's loo roll going up to the ceiling, but there's no tonic. I had to get clementine tonic. <laughs> Desperate times. So um, we're hopefully all going to come out of lockdown, um, you know, better for it but what would we what would you do for a party post lockdown how would you what would you i mean it's a, it's a broad question just for a bit of fun how would you throw a, a party uh to celebrate coming out after coronavirus huh. celebrate coming out well i mean we could all have lots of corona beer because apparently that's not being bought and is left in the shop someone oh, sent me a video i don't know if it's corona beer i mean as if it's got coronavirus how ridiculous you know yeah, I, thought, I thought it was the antidote so i've been having it for breakfast <laughs> maybe it's the new oh i love fake news do you know i think it would just be so weird to, to actually see each other i'm 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 not finding this too much of a struggle because I've got a little girl and so I'm stuck at home a lot you know the evenings for me it's just me and her I don't get to really go out because babysitters are, are a lot so it's not I'm not really suffering but I always like to throw a good party and I think I would like to perhaps I would throw a party with lots of British wines and I would include I include this lovely Roebuck one. I would include, um, oh, I tell you what's nice. Try the rose by Black Chalk. They're nice. English. Really nice. That would be impressive. Uh, that would be a bit different. Um, yeah, I think, I think sparkling wine would be a lovely party to have. You could just have a party with loads of different sparkling wines, couldn't you? So, and yeah. get people to guess where they were from. You could do all the different ones and people could take take it in turns or go around to the different tables 
and they can get a point. At I, I'm getting kind of excited about this. I feel like hosting a, a post-lockdown party, especially for British wine, actually, because I'm very mm. pro anything British, especially since, you know, Brexit, we're all going to have to start growing our own stuff and producing more and actually appreciating how good our produce is. So are you saying the rosé is also English? Oh yeah, some rosé. Well, anyone can make a rosé. And actually, with champagne, it's one of the rare appellations where you can just put a little bit of red in with your white to make it rosé. When you said appellation, that's what they have on the bottle, isn't it? They have, uh, yeah. What does it yeah. mean? It's just the little area. So the designated area. So, um, for example, in Champagne, the designated area is that Champagne region. And when you step out of it, you're not making Champagne. No. Interesting. So we think yeah. of Champagne as a method, don't we? But you're saying, strictly speaking, it's a grape from that area. No, I'm not saying it's a grape from that area at all. I'm saying it is a region. A region. Oh, sorry, region. <laughs> the grapes are Chardonnay grapes, Chardonnay. Pinot Noir grapes, Pinot Meunier grapes. You're allowed to add a bit of some other grapes too. Pinot Gris, I think, can't remember. I, anyway, but it, there is, it is confusing because there's Champagne the region, and that's the only place where you can get Champagne from. And then there's the way of making Champagne, which is called the, um, well, it's called the Champagne method, if you like, or the method Champagnoise, Champagnoise people talk about. Um, or the traditional method. Basically, this involves a second fermentation in a bottle rather than a tank. And uh, so this is a bit more expensive than making Prosecco, which is made using this Charmat or tank method. And um, that's one of the reasons why champagne is a, is a little bit more expensive. But yes, it's, um, oh my gosh, I have a visitor. <laughs> I'm just waving outside. Sorry, I'll record. Can I pause for one yes, second? Yes, of course. Can you? I'll be right back. Sure. So this is the cremant. Now, Happy. I know that we're on a podcast and you can't see, but the, it's the cremant de Loire by Earl Vauvy, V-A-U-V-Y. And I would definitely recommend that because I think it's quite, quite yeasty and I'm enjoying that. And this, you wouldn't know it was Japanese, would you? Never in a million years, but they have em, um, emulated a French label very much, haven't they? Well, it's made in that traditional method again. So the second fermentation takes place in a bottle, not a tank, mm -hmm. to get the fizz in. Because okay. you want that reaction to get the carbon dioxide under pressure. And um, this one is, is called Lumiere Pétillon. It's a 2013, the one I've got. A koshu, koshu sparkling wine. And it's Japanese. Uh, and it's that's Japanese. 12 pounds a bottle one. No, this is, uh, I think it's about 38. Oh dear. Uh, sorry. No. I've got lots of ranging for, I've got, I've got some wine in that cupboard behind me for, if perhaps if we don't celebrate the end of lockdown, um, well, I'm just thinking, yeah, I've got, I've got some bottles that I really want to drink before I die. Actually, <laughs> Lucy, you've brought me on to another point. My, my kids <laughs> left, left home, you know, five years ago, three years ago, whatever. And in their bedrooms, they've got these fabulous sort of boxed champagnes from their 18th and 21st. Is it true they all, they have to be drunk within a year? You can't, you can't keep champagne. No, that's not true. Oh, they've already aged. Tuck into it. You can, go for it. I'll come and help. Mm. Sorry, kids. Um, Emergency. <laughs> sorry, kids. <laughs> um, if they are kept 
don't keep them in the light because light okay. don't, wines don't like lots of light. Keep it in a cool, dark place. Keep it in your cellar. Okay. Along with, your, with those boyfriends. Oh, I've got a few dead bodies down there. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. yeah. Well, some okay. not too, they should just be bone now. I mean, all the flesh should be destroyed, so it shouldn't smell anymore. That's it should be fine. I, can always, I can just step over them and put them on the racks. No, and just put Keep your wines. <laughs> keep them somewhere cool and, and dry and dark. I mean, and, yeah. aside, it was more for the kids. I didn't want them, because they've got these special bottles that were given to them, and lovely wines, very expensive, I'm sure. You know, beautiful presents from friends and family. And I'm just sitting there thinking, they're all dusty, which looks very authentic, but are they going to go to waste? But you're saying no, keep them. You know, to, to be champagne, your wine has, that wine has to stay in under that fermentation for three years to make it a vintage champagne, sorry. Okay. For non-vintage, it just has to age for 15 months. That's before disgorging. So it already has got some age on it. They are built to last. That's the whole body and structure and complexity of a wine is, is it tells you about, you know, if it'll age, if it's got that real good backbone to it. So when, um, when people have been terribly disappointed and they've got that vintage bottle out of the cellar because, you know, lockdown's coming to an end, they thought, yeah, now or never, we're going to crack it open. And it's been terrible. It's, it's, it's tastes like, I don't know, dust or whatever, or, what's what's gone on there they just not stored it right possibly i mean it might have been there might have been something wrong with the wine to start off with it could have been a corked i've had a corked champagne before that was very disappointing but if it has been kept in unfavorable conditions yes it might have gone musty uh, wine does get light shock and that's often why it's in made in oh, it feels at the i'm gonna have light shock after this <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> I'm not aging well either after this. Um, Lucy, you're you're such great fun to talk to with What the Fizz. It, it's been a real fun, fun podcast. But before, and a fantastic guest and very knowledgeable, joking aside, you really know your stuff and I've learned a lot from you today. Um, and you do blog about this, don't you? Um, before we go, just a bit of tongue-in-cheek questions. If we really don't like somebody, what should we buy them? What should we give them as a gift? Not that we'd really do this because we're not like that, but just... Yeah, if I, yeah. if I went out for dinner and it was somebody that I didn't like very much and somebody else had brought me one of those wines for dinner that you think, gosh, where on earth did you... Did you get that? You know, I didn't know they still made Blue Nun in that packaging type thing. They're always good to keep and bring to another dinner party, but you have to be careful. You don't take it to the person who gave it you. You know, they can do the rounds, these rubbish bottles, can't they? Like, oh, there it is. I've seen that bottle before. Yeah, it's come back to me now, has it? I tell you, there's not going to be anything special about a 1982 Blue Nun. <laughs> well, I doubt it anyway. But um, yeah, if, I think if, if, I mean, that's more, I think, about the sort of situation. If, if you don't want to taint a wine that you really love with a person that you really don't. So, you know, if, if, you, if you think you're going to get dumped, don't order your favourite wine to get dumped with. Because then you might, you might sort of always remember it that way. It might bring up bad feelings. Yeah. Likewise, if you want to get rid of somebody, don't order them a glass of their favourite wine and then tell them you never want to see them again. No. So you order them a blue nun. Do they still have yeah. blue nun on menus? 
Yeah, I don't think what you even being really mean about Blue Mountain. It's probably got delicious. And you know that Black Tower is the other one I was thinking of. But they're probably delicious now. They've probably had huge amounts of money put into marketing campaigns and they're lovely. I've been away from it with my daughter for a bit, but who knows? But I haven't seen any in the shops, I have to say. But yeah, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? I think the other thing you could do. Yeah, I'm, no, that would that would be costly and embarrassing. I'm just thinking that you could you could do something like take a really inappropriate wine, like a bottle of Cristal in a display case, to something really inappropriate. Do you know what I mean? Like a know, breakfast or something. But that would be an expensive way of getting your point across. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that would work. Yeah, I mean, I remember all these dreadful horrors of wines like Lieb, Frau Milch, Blue Nun, and Matthias Rosé. Do you remember that? That was the original. Yeah, I like Matthias Rosé. Somebody the other day, quite a good wine person who, who throws fabulous dinner parties, she brought out the Matthias Rosé, but she'd put it in the fridge for so long. It was so cold. It was delicious. And we're well, all used to the, the Whispering Angel and the, uh, you know, the very expensive French ones. But uh, minute and but I have to say maybe it's just because it was the end of the dinner party, but it was really good. Or during the middle, but it was good. Very cold. Well, yeah, that is that is a good trick though, Hazel. That's a really good tip and trick. That if we've got something that's not like a great champagne or something that you really are wanting to experience the full flavour of, serve it ice cold because it will kill the nose and people won't really tell what they're drinking I mean I used to do this when I was younger we used to go um, and pick up wine in France that that we got I think it was five francs a bottle and it had a plastic cork so that's 50p roughly it had a plastic cork in it and I remember that year it was freezing cold so we kept it in what we called the outside fridge which is just a little concrete block of the flat that was outside we didn't have any outside space that's all there and I did the, the champagne cocktail thing and we had wine left and it was brilliant. And nobody noticed they were drinking ice cold, nearly frozen, 550p a bottle of sparkling wine. And is it ever acceptable, um, fast forward to when we're all a bit more sophisticated than that, but is it ever acceptable to put ice in your wine? Mm, yeah, I think it is. I think people... People sometimes do just to chill it down even more and to actually get the extra water in it. Some people like a slightly diluted wine. I have a friend who loves Sauvignon Blanc. She puts about five ice cubes in it. Um, I would not enjoy that experience. I I'm not the sort of Sauvignon Blanc's biggest fan either. But um, yeah, I can see why you do it. I've seen people have a glass of rosé, you know, served in a more of a kind of pint glass. And they got a straw, a load of ice, and squeeze a lime in it. So it's a different drink, isn't it? I don't think I'd go for that. I think I'd have a drink that was made to be with a straw and a, and a wedge of lime. <laughs> but that's just me being old-fashioned. Okay. And finally, just before we go, how can we really support the British, British wine growers today on this Friday? How can we really, what, what can we hope for the future of British wine? I think, I think British wine, there is amazing quality out there. It's as good as any champagne. There are some different flavours, of course. Um, <clears throat> but it's often made with the same grapes as the, the wine is made in champagne. 
but really what you can do is buy it you know waitress have a great supply of um british wines and they're a really good place to try i don't really have a waitress near here so like i said i've got my very very small local wine shop and i like to support the small independents as well so i get my wine from there and um I'll be looking at English wines too. But yeah, I think the best thing you can do is buy it. And if you can be bothered, share it on social media. You can always take a picture or something like Absolutely. that and, and put the at, and then you can put at the, you know, the producer so they know, and they can always perhaps use your reviews as well. It's helpful for them because what we've been saying all along is wine is so subjective. There's no right and wrongs. What you like is absolutely up to you. And I'm not a wine snob at all. And maybe, maybe um, it is under-promoted in the sense that I'm sure the British wine growers are trying like mad to promote it, but you keep mentioning Waitrose. You know, what about the Tesco's, the, the Sainsbury's? Are they, are they pushing it? Shouldn't we see it, see it more visually in front of us? Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think they're pushing it at all. I think it'd be very hard pushed to find any. And the trouble is, is often when you do find English wine, it can, it can be at a very high price point. Because when you just start making something, of course, you've got to establish the vineyards, employ all the people, get all the equipment you need for making this wine. There are huge costs involved. Um, so it, is, it isn't going to be cheap as chips, I'm afraid. But yes, I think, I think the key to being 50 and over and drinking wine, I would say drink a bit less. You never look cool when you're drunk. You think you do. That's the trouble. But when you're over 50, you've got to have got over that. I don't, I can't remember when I was last drunk, but then it's a drip drip. <laughs> it's a constant drip drip. But I never get drunk anymore. Um, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of, um, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't drink so much to get drunk. I would spend money on nicer wines and I'm drink sure. a little bit less. Uh -huh. Lucy, on that note, we're going to leave you. Thank you so much for being a fantastic guest. And thank you so much for celebrating today, um, British Wine Day. And we look forward to promoting it more in the future. Thank you so much, Lucy. Speak to you soon. Thank you, Hazel. Bye. Bye.